Good morning. My name is Brian, uh, and I get to share with you this morning uh, the final sermon in the Home for the Holiday series. For those of us joining us online, grateful to have you. Um, I hope everyone's Thanksgiving was good and enjoyable. Uh, I walked around this morning, got a good chance to talk to a number of people um, to see how their Thanksgiving was. And what I discovered was that there's a difference between Thanksgiving with friends and a Thanksgiving with family. Anybody else realize that? So this past, this year, three days ago, we had Thanksgiving up in Frederick, Maryland with friends. And that was probably the first time in about seven, eight years that I didn't travel to upstate New York where my wife's family was. And Thanksgiving with friends was completely different than Thanksgiving with family. It seemed like there's two juxtaposed things. One seemed a lot less stressful, right? I don't know if that's because, like, you get those personalities for like an hour, but you know you can kind of get rid of them the rest of the time, you know, but family just sticks around. I'm not sure what it is, but there's something different about friends and family. Either way, the people around the table shape and influence our experience of the meal, right? Like there's something that happens. George Burns, and you may have seen this on the email that came out this week if you're a part of our uh, Grace newsletter. George Burns once says, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. <laughs> Growing up, there was about four of us in our family, myself, my sister who's nine years older, and my mom and my dad. And so it was small. We had cousins around. We had family in the area. But for some reason, we all had our unique personality and preferences for what that holiday would be like. And so we never got together. It was always just the four of us. And I could manage that. Like, it was doable. I knew what to expect. There was one dominant personality in our family. And we could kind of revolve around that one dominant personality. It was very calm. I got married. And we... My wife has a little larger family, and so we went from four people around the dinner table to about 15 to 20. And I quickly realized there are a lot more personalities to navigate, a lot more baggage to navigate, a lot more stress, a lot more conflict. And so what did I do? I'm a little bit more introverted. I like to be kind of in the background. I assigned myself a role in the kitchen. Because when you're working on a task, you can kind of dictate the conversations that you have. You can control where your focus is, and that allowed me to step back and just kind of let the chaos, the explosions happen around me, right? But I'm focused. I've got to get that bird just right, and so I can kind of withdraw from that. There's something neat about seeing all these personalities in play, but they create tension, right? That's the problem. But there's something in our perspective that creates change, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. And when I say perspective, I'm not just saying, look for the good. That's helpful. But it's pretty surface, right? If you have a family member that you're like, okay, this year is going to be the year where I see the good in them. And as soon as you walk through the door, they say one thing and all that hope is out the window. <laughs> People are going to do that to us. It's not just seeing the good. It's got to go deeper. So this morning, I want to talk about two different personalities by way of Acts 9. If you have your Bible or an app, uh, we're going to open up to Acts 9. Talk about these two people, Saul and Ananias. Saul and Ananias. Saul is a key influential figure in the first century church, actually writes almost two-thirds of our New Testament scriptures. Uh, he's later renamed Paul after he has this conversion experience. He grows up Jewish and begins to excel in education. 
religious education, becomes very influential very quickly, and takes some of that passion, that zeal for Judaism, and says the people who are following Jesus are wrong, and they're diluting our faith, and we need to stop this movement before it gets going. And so he's on his way to Damascus, and this is what we'll be reading in a moment, with instructions to take those believers, those Christians, and bind them and bring them back before the Jewish council. And on his way there, Jesus, who Rome has crucified, three days later, Jesus raises from the dead. This is the story of Christianity. Um, Jesus suffers, dies, raises back from the dead, and ascends to the right hand of God and sits in power and authority as king and lord. And Jesus comes back, his glorified self after the resurrection, and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul looks and says, Lord, you will be my king. He changes his allegiance. Something happens in Saul that changes everything about who he is and reorients his faith, his personality. And so we're going to read that story a little bit as we get into Acts 9. We'll start with verses 1 through 2, and then we'll jump through 10 through 19. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if, any found, if he had found any who belonged to the way, that is, Christians, uh, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, Here I am, Lord. And that's an important phrase that we'll come back to. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying and he is seen in a vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. In other words, he's got a reputation and his reputation precedes him. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and there has, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before all the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he has to suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Saul got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. There's three main characters in this passage. We have God and we have Saul and Ananias. And the latter two are what I want to focus on because they have two distinct personalities, Saul and Ananias. Saul we learn is extreme. I mentioned his zeal, his passion. He lives in the extremes of life. He's passionate. He's educated. He's direct. He's vocal. He's influential. He's got power. He's a mover and a shaker. He travels the world spreading this message and making a difference around him. Ananias, on the other hand, as far as we know, there's little written about him in Scripture and stuff outside of Scripture, but he's a homebody. He was born, raised, worked, and likely died in Damascus. Never traveled. He has no formal religious education. 
He's not a leader. He prefers the status quo. He loves comfort. God comes to him and says, go see Saul. And he looks and he says, there's too much risk with Saul. I'm going to stay here. I prefer safety. At the same time, he's obedient. God calls him and he says, here I am, Lord, which is a, a prophetic cry of, I'm your servant. I'll do whatever you tell me. These are two different personalities, right? Like one's extreme and one prefers comfort. One's always moving out of his comfort zone. And one's always kind of keeping safe boundaries around himself. They're two different people. And what happens is God calls Ananias and says, go talk to Saul. And Saul says, or Ananias says, that guy's got a reputation. I don't know if you had anybody at your table this week that you've heard were coming and said, oh, no, not them. They've got a reputation. Don't set me next to them because every time I sit next to them, they talk about religion or they talk about politics. There's something about them that rubs you the wrong way and you know it's coming. It builds up that anxiety, that fear, that tension. And you begin to put up your defenses before you ever see them at the door. Or maybe you've got the reputation. There's something powerful with what comes behind us, who we are that sets up expectations, right? Our personalities, our baggage. And that's what Ananias is reminding God of. Ananias looks at God and says, do you know who that guy is? You don't want to use him. Use me instead. You don't want to use Saul. He's got a history. He's got a past. He's got a reputation. There's something in him that just isn't right. The powerful thing in this passage is what God does. God looks at him and says, I don't care about your personality differences. The personalities that Saul has is not necessarily bad. Passionate, educated, influential. They're just oriented in the wrong direction. He's allowed sin. He's allowed fear. He's allowed some of the internal baggage that he has to redirect those things. And he's labeled as terrorizing, as proud, tearing down the church. But God wants to redeem those things and turn them for good. Powerful thing that I see in this passage um, that I need to remember more about those around the table, whether it's friends or family, is that the past is informative. It's not determinative. The past is informative, not determinative. We know people have a reputation. We know that there's baggage around these events and what's going on around us, and those things are informative. We need to know kind of how people react and anticipate what we're walking into. But when we view those things, the personalities, the baggage, the past relationships as determinative, what do we do? We seal their fate. We say there is no hope for you. Pastor Matt talked about this a little bit last week. We cut them off from change. And we reinforce that negative pattern, the dysfunctional pattern, because we say there's no hope for you. The past is informative but not determinative. That's what God reminds Ananias. He comes and says, I've got a purpose for Saul. I don't care about his past. I'm going to deal with him about that. There's consequences for that past, for how he's acting. But with God, there's redemption of the future. Just because he's acted that way in the past doesn't mean he's going to always act that way in the future. There's hope for change. Ananias sees Saul's personality as wrong. And based on that difference... 
He wants to cut him off from God and say, you have no purpose. Ananias is confronted with two possibilities. He can either promote himself or promote Saul. He can prioritize himself or prioritize Saul. And maybe you've seen this play out at your dinner tables. Ananias can cut Saul off for his past and say, no, I'm better than him. I'm going to promote myself. I'm better than him. I've got the better personality. I cook the better turkey. I drive better. I I believe in the right sports teams. I am better than him. There's no hope for him. And that builds up condescension. We look down upon the other person. Or he can promote Saul, prioritize Saul and say, Saul's so influential. He's so good. He's got the right job. He's making a lot more money than I am. He knows how to handle a crowd. He knows how to get people to laugh. He knows how to bake the right pumpkin pie. He's got all the stuff going for him. I need to water down who I am and just let him take the spotlight. He's so much better than me. I can water down my faith. Ananias could have looked at Saul and said, Saul is coming to persecute the church. If I just water down my faith, I'll be safe. Comfort, safety. Both of these, however, promoting himself or promoting Saul is the wrong focus because it ends in a power struggle, right? We're both trying to figure out who's better than the other person. We're trying to figure out who has more influence, who has more power. Timothy Keller talks about this, something similar to this, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. I've been counseling couples here that are looking to get married, and for the past year and a half, I read this quote to almost every couple. We have about 20 couples that look to get married out of here every year. It's a busy time of year. A lot of people falling in love. And everything looks rosy at the beginning, right? All the personalities, kind of the differences are nice little inside jokes. They're cute. They're fun. You know, you kind of poke fun at each other. But you know, a couple months into that marriage, those differences kind of become frustrating. They become annoyances. And so usually I tell them this quote. Timothy Keller writes, In the beginning, you feel an attraction to this other person. You think he or she is wonderful. But a year or two later, just as often, a month or two later, three things begin to happen. First, you begin to find out how selfish the wonderful person you married is. Second, you discover that the wonderful person you married is having the same experience about you and begins to tell you how selfish you are. And third... You determine, although you acknowledge it in part, your own selfishness, that your spouse is ultimately more selfish than you are. You get what's happening here. Okay, they're really selfish. Oh, they're telling me I'm selfish? Okay, that's fine. But they're more selfish than me. They're more problematic than me. And you have this power struggle that begins to happen. What's interesting, why I bring that up, is because at the heart of Timothy Keller's message is, you're both selfish, It's not one person over the other. There's not this power struggle. You're both selfish. You're both flawed. You both have differences. And we grant them power over us based on these differences. We can push each other's buttons, right? Like we annoy each other. We insult each other. There's baggage around these things. And all of a sudden, emotions are stirred up. We're frustrated. Say we're this wonderful water bottle. And these are the people around us, right? The people sitting at your dinner table this past week or 
the people that will be sitting at your dinner table over Christmas and New Year's. And all of a sudden, you know, we're having a conversation. We're digging into relationship. And all of a sudden, they bump into us, right? They hit us. They annoy us. They say something that insults us, that stirs up pain inside of us. And they're constantly hitting us. And for every time they hit us, there's a reaction that happens, right? There's a reaction that happens. And water comes out of this water bottle and spills everywhere. And we look around, we see the water everywhere. And they're constantly just rubbing up against us little by little. Why does water come out of this water bottle? The common perception is because this person is hitting me. They're rubbing me the wrong way because their problems are more powerful than my problems. And so every time they hit me, water comes out of this water bottle. It's them. And while there is a truth in that, that this is an inciting event, something that provokes it, something that challenges us, rubs us the wrong way, hits us, this is merely an opportunity. Water comes out of this water bottle because that's what's inside this water bottle, right? So as people bounce into us, hit us, insult us, take the last turkey leg at the table. (laughs) Something comes out of us. Something comes out of us. We fight back. We insult back. Bitterness builds up inside. Our water becomes toxic, right? And so every time they hit us, every time they bounce into us, every time they insult us, we say things that we regret. We get frustrated. We argue back or we ignore the situation. We walk away. We blow up. But the reality is is that there's water coming out of us. Something comes out of us. And I believe that what's inside this water bottle is important. What comes out of you is important. It's not to diminish the influence of the other person. But what comes out of us can either create life or bring strife. What comes out of us can either create life or bring strife. And this is where the majority of our focus needs to be because this is what God wants to talk about. Our interactions are very important. What the other person does isn't very important. I don't want to minimize that because there's some real implications to what they're doing. It could be wrong. It could be very dysfunctional. It could be unhealthy. It could be abusive. But in the end game, to say they made me do that is to grant them control, power over us, to promote them over ourselves. And that's what I believe God wants to deal with. The water bottle reflects something deeper. It shows that something is out of order. Something is out of order. There's two great commandments in Scripture that Jesus reiterates to us. And they're all throughout the Old Testament. Um, They've been taken up by rabbis over the years, Hillel and Shammai. They talk about these two great commandments. And the Pharisees come to Jesus and they try to get him trapped in some legal language and say, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The order of these is important. 
See, I think there's a false belief that we carry around, at least I do, hopefully I'm not alone in this, that if we just had the right people in our life, or the people in our lives kind of fixed themselves, got a little nicer, a little bit kinder, more politically correct, more socially acceptable, hit us less, that what's inside this water bottle would be better, right? That's the false belief, that if I just had the right people in my life, I wouldn't see the negative things coming out. And that's true. But does that change what's inside the water bottle? The potential is still there. What's inside the water bottle is still there. Just because we're getting hit less doesn't change anything. Less bumps doesn't mean that we're better off. The question is, who's at the center? If you're promoting yourself or promoting the other person, you're putting the order of these in the wrong direction. You're putting love your neighbor as yourself first and love God second. If you're promoting yourself or the other person, you're putting yourself or the other person at the center, which reverses these orders. All relationships happen in the context of the divine. That's why this order is the way it is. Love God first, love neighbor second. Because all relationships have in the context of the divine. And so as each time we're bumped, we're knocked around, we're bruised, something comes out of us, that is giving God an opportunity to bring us face to face with our flaws, with our sins. And that is where life happens. When we embrace that reality, God begins to make small adjustments along the way where change can take place, where life can happen. See, the, the first commandment epitomizes the gospel. Love the Lord your God. That's all about relationship. The gospel is this message that despite what's inside this water bottle, despite the flaws that we have, we can be in relationship with an almighty God. And Jesus embodies this because in his divinity, he comes and he dies but is raised to new life. And he, in that action, he overcomes death, he overcomes evil, he overcomes the flaws that are inside us, inside this water bottle, and gives us the propensity for change. In his humanity, Jesus embodies this because he walks among us, he takes on our relationships, he sees the interaction, but he deals with them properly. So if you look at Jesus' life, there's something powerful that happens. Jesus is constantly abused. He's constantly betrayed. He's mocked. He's insulted. He's spit on, eventually crucified. He's interrogated by Pilate, who essentially asks, who do you think you are? And Jesus, instead of coming back with insult or pain or raising up and calling down the angels or, or raising up war, he looks at him and instead of spewing out the insults and negative and toxic life, because he's got the order correct, God first, then people, he looks at him and he says, speaks the truth in love. He speaks with authority. He doesn't lay down, just take it. He speaks with truth. He speaks with power. He speaks with authority, but he speaks with respect, with valuing and honoring life rather than tearing it down. What comes out of him is life-giving rather than bringing strife. That's how we know that this is real. These two commandments turn this message inward. As painful as that is, 
We want to shift blame all day long, but we need to turn that message inward and say, how am I doing on that first commandment? Is that in the right order? Preserving the order of these commandments redeems the relationship. Preserving the order redeems the relationship because it's putting the appropriate center in place. And the understanding is that as this begins to transform, that it, it matriculates into the relationships around us. As I begin to focus on what's inside and say, okay, God, there's a lot of stuff spilling out of me that I don't like, and I look around time and time again, there's a lot of carnage, a lot of waste, a lot of pain. Help me to take responsibility for those things and change what's inside of me. Beginning with God and then moving to others. The psalmist knows this. Psalm 139 is a great psalm. It says, search my spouse, O God, and tell them how selfish they are. I wish it were that simple. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's no blame shifting. There's no give me less bumps. No fix that person first. No they're worse than I am. It's I'm only responsible for me. And God, you want me to turn and focus on that relationship with you first so that it impacts the relationships around me. Ananias starts out strong. He says, here I am, Lord. I'll do whatever you want. And, and God says, okay, great. Go talk to Saul. And he says, whoa, not that guy. Anybody but him. But ultimately, something changes in Ananias' perspective. Something changes. And he eventually goes and he confronts Saul and sees God do something mighty in their lives. Friends and family will continue to do us wrong. They'll continue to irritate us. But we can find healing and restore these relationships when we get this order right. What is being prioritized in your life? Is it the people around you or is it the God that's in your midst, in front of you, in you? Ananias is challenged to promote God to the center, to trust him despite Saul's dysfunctional personality. This process brings transformation to what's inside. What's inside this water bottle? Something begins to change. The painful part, it's not very encouraging this morning, but it's a long process. It's encouraging because no one's expecting you to go out of here today and be like, okay, I'm going to focus on God and tomorrow my relationship's going to be perfect. No one's setting up that expectation for you. Indeed, a lot of times after I come out of prayer or worship service, I feel very close to God. And the first person on the road in Old Glebe sets me off. Back 50 steps all of a sudden, and I no longer feel so spiritual. It's not a one and done. This is a long journey. This is called the process of sanctification. It is indeed a process. Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, writes this. This life, therefore is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. 
We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but is going on. This is not the end, but it is a road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. The journey that we're going on is lifelong, and we're looking for incremental progress. There's power in the process as long as we keep that first commandment first and everyone else second. Something begins to change inside of us. As we have several more tables in front of us over the next five, six weeks, perhaps, as we enter into the Advent season, when you remember these things, the past is informative but not determinative. It's informative but not determinative. As we respond to God trying to reorder these commands. Our pasts are redeemed. God no longer looks at us as a failure, as a flaw. It looks at all the water and the toxicity around us and says, okay, they're cut off because of how they acted in the past. Our past is redeemed. But it also means that our futures are renegotiated. It's not like we're set on one trajectory and because we've set that trajectory, we are stuck on it. And God says, okay, well, I'm abandoning him to that trajectory. God comes into the midst, into the, to the relationships, and he hits us at a 90 degree and sets our trajectory going a different way. Our pasts are redeemed and our futures are renegotiated. But this only happens as we respond with regular repentance. Before God and before those that we hurt. Second thing I want you to remember is what comes out of us can either bring life or create strife. And then finally, preserving the order redeems the relationship. Will you focus with me over the next coming weeks and hopefully the rest of our lives to preserve the order of these commandments? This means responding to God, focusing on your relationship with him first and allowing him to do the work that he wants to do inside of us first rather than passing the blame to the other person. When we confront reality and responsibility, we give God the chance to redeem something instead of reinforcing a pattern of frustration and dysfunction. We become the agent for change in that relationship because God is changing something inside of us. We need to do this by four simple things that are not quite so simple, but they're alliterative because I'm a pastor, so they're all going to be in with ours. Reflect. Reflect honestly on what's inside. This is hard. This is challenging. It's intimidating. It's uncomfortable. We need to reflect on what's going on inside of us. We need to repent for our reactions. Small, large, in comparison to theirs, it might have been minuscule, but it doesn't matter because God's calling you to responsibility for what you have done. We're not in charge of putting responsibility and consequences on others. We need to reflect honestly on what's inside. Repent for our actions. Then rest in God's acceptance. This is a hard one. We repent. We acknowledge that there's a lot of junk in here. A lot of stuff comes out of us. But that junk, God doesn't look at it and go, they're too dirty for me. They've said too many wrong things for me to deal with them. He doesn't look at it and say, there's too much bitterness in there. I'm, I'm walking away. He looks at that and says, I don't care where it's been. 
I'm in the process of recreating something new. There's hope. I love you as you are, and we're going to take this thing further. Reflect, repent, rest. And then finally, repeat. Repeat daily. If you're married, you know that this is a real process. Daily repeating this process of reflecting, repenting, and resting. It's a journey. It's a race. It's not a moment. I'm asking if you'll consider continuing this process with me as we head through the holidays, as you consider your journey with Christianity. The reality is that this is an ongoing thing. And as we dig into these, life comes, change happens in the ordinary moments, in the ordinary relationships of life. I want us to pray. And then we'll implement these things throughout the week and repeat often and come back next Sunday for our Advent series. Let's pray. God, we come to you with the words of Ananias, here I am. We confess to you that we have been hurt and have hurt others at our table. Forgive us and grant us the courage to take responsibility for what comes out of us. Teach us, Lord, to respond to insult, frustration, and pain as Jesus did with gentleness, love, grace, and strength. We ask that you search us and know us, that you would transform what is inside of us through your spirit, that we might be able to bring life to others rather than strife. I thank you that my past is not determinative, but you're in the process of redeeming it to accomplish in me what you want. Help me to retain the order of these commandments, placing you first and others second, so that something might be reordered in my life and change might come about. Help bring healing and hope to the relationships that I counter every day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.